my my background is quite complicated and the the, the most difficult question that anyone could ever ask me is where are you from um my my response is usually how much time do you have if someone tells you that the world is ending and you're planting a seed then just plant your seed and carry on hello and welcome to the we do hope podcast from amos trust I'm Jessie and I'm Tilly and we'll be your hosts as each episode will be joined by fascinating guests from around the world exploring what hope means to them. We'll be jumping in at the deep end talking to people about some of their biggest challenges and where they find hope in their daily lives. These conversations might inspire, surprise or move you but we'll come away with a little bit more hope, hopefully. So let's dive in. How are you doing, Jessie? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm really good. It's a Friday, it's a bank holiday weekend. What could be better? Very exciting. And you've got like your internet working, so that's all good. So we can Yeah, had a bit of a dodgy internet this morning, but we're all good. All we're good. all good. Yes, yeah, good to go. Well, today is I'm really looking forward to today's episode. We are talking all about poetry. Tilly, how do you feel about poetry? Would you consider yourself to be a fan? I would definitely consider myself to be a fan. I did English at university, so have studied it, done a bit of writing, a bit of dodgy teenage poetry <laughs> over the years. Um, yeah, how about yourself? Yeah, well, we have that in common, the English Lit degree, so we'll be in our element here. But I was asking myself this question earlier, um, what has poetry actually meant to me? And when I think about it, poetry has always been woven into my life in so many mm. ways. And some poems really feel familiar. You know, my grandpa, he loved poetry. He was a Scot, so he loved Robert Burns. And he used to recite little segments to us. And Addressed to the Haggis, exactly. isn't that his, the famous well, one? Well, yes, Burns, that's the classic one. That is the classic one. I think he got more patriotic when he moved away from Scotland. Um, <laughs> but, and we, I mean, we read poems at funerals, at weddings, any kind of human rite of passage, really. And mm. even when we know the words won't be enough, they are often the best tool that we have to share our emotions. And I mean, when lockdown happened, I definitely turned to poetry. I was sending cards with little poems or sharing things on social media with friends. So yeah, when I think about it, even though I might hesitate to call myself, you know, a poetry fan, actually, I've loved poetry my entire life and probably so of most people listening. Yeah, I think it's one of those things people feel disconnected to for whatever reason from school or or studying something they didn't quite gel with in school and then they've just written it off for like the rest of their lives. But actually I've recently become really um I've become really into these Instagram poetry accounts and there is a bit of a snobbery around Instagram poetry, but it's amazing because in the when I'm scrolling on Instagram, I believe, you know, inundated with adverts and spawn con and PR things. And then and then I'll get a beautiful line or a stanza of a poem which will just appear in the midst of it all. And it's really calming and grounding and a thought provoking often. And often I don't know how they do it, but the people who choose the poems, they seem to know what's going on in my life because you I'll be reading it. And I'll go, exactly. I'll say, how do they know? Um so today's episode is a little bit different because we're dividing the episode into two halves with two incredible poets joining us. So we've got Zina Kazimi and Rakaya Fatuga. And there's something magical about experiencing a spoken word live, isn't there? And we're really honored that both Zina and Rakaya will be performing a few of their poems today, chosen especially for the We Do Hope podcast. Definitely. I think poetry really becomes something completely different when read aloud. And wherever you are listening to this podcast, I would suggest maybe turning it up, turning up the volume, letting yourself be fully immersed and transported away into the world of poetry along with us. So let me start by introducing our first guest. Zina Kazimi is a Persian Iraqi poet who draws on her experiences as a former refugee to create her poetry. She explores ideas of home and belonging, exile and war. She's contributed to BBC Radio 2's Pause for Thought and has performed at the Poetry Cafe in the heart of London's Covent Garden and at Imperial College London for International Women's Day. By day, she runs a refugee resettlement programme in London with a master's degree in human rights and immigration, with refugee rights forming a central part of her poetry and her work. She also happens to be a trustee of the Amos Trust. Zina is going to start us off by sharing her poem, 
the women of my country. The women of my country. The women of my country have thick accents and huge hearts. Their perception of personal space is narrow and their pain threshold is vast. Their joy is a raucous orchestra, songbirds perch on their tongues, ululating. Their sorrow is a revolution cry. Thunder breaks in their throats. They can fill a desert oasis, a spring with their tears. Even their sadness is life-giving. They sow fields of wildflowers with threads of crimson, olive green and turmeric gold into the skirts of their dresses. The women of my country do not use measuring cups or teaspoons. Their palms are the perfect circumference for za'atar and saffron. The women of my country will open their homes to you before asking your name. They'll place their head covering a welcome mat at your feet and sit you on a throne made of their bones. They have made self-sacrifice a form of hospitality. They compete in their humility. The women of my country are the descendants of prophets and poets, with patience as old as the moon. The women of my country are the heroes that live outside of history books. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was absolutely gorgeous. And it's just such a pleasure to listen to you reading your own work. And yeah, all of the little details and are just so beautiful. And oh, yeah, I just loved it. Could you tell us a little bit about that poem, Zina? Yeah, of course. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm more than happy. Oh, it's to our be pleasure. <laughs> yeah, really welcome. happy to be sharing some poetry with you guys. Um, yeah, this poem is is kind of I I think of it as a little bit bittersweet, um, and it's inspired by all the wonderful women that raised me. I grew up, um, you know, um, around lots of aunts and my grandmothers, and I I was lucky enough to have my great grandmother be a huge part of my life as well when I was younger, um, and of course my own mum and lots of female cousins and. Um, it's just that that kind. Of, this poem kind of puts me in the middle of my grandmother's kitchen with all the women sitting around, sort of destemming herbs and chopping things up and brewing tea and chatting over each other. And the strength that they hold that's often overlooked is um, is is heartbreaking, and at the same time, is what makes them who they are. Oh, but I really felt that listening to it, that warmth, like you say, of sitting in the kitchen mm. and listening to people. So, yeah, it was a beautiful poem. And yeah, we're, we're so happy to welcome you today to the We Do Hope podcast. And we like to start off by asking all of our guests to share something that has made them hopeful this week. So it could be something small. It could be something big. Is there something that kind of springs to mind? Um, well, Actually, this week, um, I I read a piece of really good news uh, from an organisation that I really love called Freedom From Torture. And um, mm. they recently took the government to court on the government's plans to push back refugee boats and won. So as a result, Priti Patel has backed down on that policy and... Um, and yeah, it's given me an immense amount of hope working with refugees and seeing the latest sort of policies that are coming out in the laws. Um you know, it's heartbreaking and we often don't have good news for the people that we work with. Um, mm. So, yeah, th- this is this is a piece of news that I'm really holding on to to get me through, to make me believe again that, you know, small action actually pays off. And when people say, you know, petitions don't work, this is this is the news headline that I sort of stick in their face and I go, this is this is what petitions yeah. can do. Look. Um, yeah there's the that's proof. so uplifting inspiring especially we should say that we're recording this at the end of april and there's been a raft of policies passed in the past couple of weeks really that um you know talks about a scheme to send people to rwanda um and uh, the asylum bill which is currently going through and it's just really distressing to kind of hear all of these really horrific policies being being passed and spoken about in, in in the commons and it's so inspiring to hear that you've had kind of that win as well so thank you so much for sharing that that's made me feel hopeful a little <laughs> bit more hopeful already yeah absolutely and so talking more about your poetry Zena, it often deals with the themes of exile home war heritage and your life particularly your early experience as a refugee um we obviously are inspi- you know inspiring and informing to your work 
If you're happy to share, we'd love you to tell us about where you grew up and your experience as a refugee and how it informs your poetry. So my my background is quite complicated and the the, the most difficult question that anyone could ever ask me is where are you from? Um, my, my response <laughs> is usually how much time do you have? Because um, it's a bit of a story. So my family are um, of Persian ethnicity and I don't say Iranian, I say Persian because it was before Iran was Iran and Iraq was Iraq and before borders and colonization. Um, And so being Persian is kind of an ethnicity rather than um, a nationality. Uh, So my Mm. family were uh, about sixth generation Persian Iraqis living in Iraq, in Baghdad, in the capital. And um, they you know, they knew nothing beyond Iraqi culture. They had obviously some part of their Persian heritage that informed their, you know, um, their celebrations and their traditions that made them stand out a little bit in their community. But in general, um, you know, they were very strong in their Iraqi identity. Um, In the 19, between the 1980s, 1990s, there was a mass exile of the Persian Iraqi community from Iraq by the Saddam Hussein regime, um, just at the start of the Iran-Iraq war. Um, And so um, it was first the affluent Persian Iraqi families that were exiled. So my grandfather's family, both both my grandparents' um, families uh, were very suddenly sort of exiled. around 500,000 people were forced to cross the border between Iran and Iraq uh, by foot and were exiled to Iran. Um, They were literally told to walk through uh, battlefields. And along that that walk, um, my grandparents, my parents witnessed women being raped by Iraqi soldiers and um, people getting shot and you know, my grandma always tells the story of I went from sleeping in a in a house that looked like a palace to sleeping in a horse stable, um, and they were they ended up in a refugee camp in Iran, and at that point, um, their Iraqi passports had been confiscated by the Iraqi regime, and they didn't have anything to prove their identity, so they they were not considered Iraqis in Iraq, they were not considered Iranian in Iran. Um, so they were sort of stuck in this limbo, this this sort of middle ground where they didn't belong to either place and yet felt a connection to both places. And I was born into, into that confusion um, in Iran. So I grew up in Iran, you know, um, very much connected to Iranian culture, obviously having heritage, you know, uh, from Iran. And my great grandmother spoke Farsi with a with an Arabic accent, and my parents spoke Arabic with a Farsi accent. Um, and so I grew up kind of. It's really hard for me to say something like I'm half Iranian, half Iraq, because I'm both Iranian and Iraqi, and it's just. Um, they're both a part of my life. Um, and then in the late 90s, there was an uprising in Iraq that was quashed by the Saddam Hussein regime again, where um, I think I've just over a million people were, were killed and massacred. Um, and my dad was a journalist at the time and a photographer, and he photographed a lot of the war crimes that had um, happened during the time that, that the people of our community were exiled. So he would um, take pictures of, you know, people whose limbs had been cut off and people who had uh, suffered mental health illnesses because of, um, because of the exile. And he basically photographed displaced people um, and was on the front lines of um, the political uprising against Iraq from, from Iran. And so over the years, assassinations started to take place uh, within his circle of um, friends and allies, and um, and the situation got scarier and scarier. So he left to come to the UK where we had some relatives. And a year later, um, my mum and my sisters and I followed him, and there were several attempts to leave Iran that were unsuccessful, and we were deported back to Iran and detained. And then eventually we came through Russia and then through Austria, staying in refugee camps and detention camps in both countries until we made it to Germany and to, to London from Germany. So that's And that's where you're story. talking to us from today, like you're in London. I'm in London now. I've been here for just over 20 years now. Um, 
Yeah. Wow. So I came here just at the start of the millennium, um, just as we were entering the year 2000. A brand yeah. new, a brand yeah, new. Brand new. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. And I think, um, I think many people of our generation who are born in the UK have, have no real knowledge of this period of history for your people. So thank you so much for sharing in such beautiful words and detail, because I think it's so important that we, we understand and we learn these stories. I found it interesting that you mentioned your dad was a photographer um, and sort of capturing the reality, the details, um, no matter how graphic. And, you know, do you see a correlation between yourself as a poet and capturing but through words yeah absolutely I think I do get my creativity from my dad he tried really hard to teach me photography and I was awful so <laughs> so I just I could never get so sort of the lighting and the timing and things like that right so <laughs> what is shutter speed really exactly. at the end of the day I just I don't want to know those numbers I'm not interested um but yeah um definitely definitely inspired me I think more than anything poetry has been um a, a release and I think one of the first poems I ever wrote called the round pet uh, the round peg um about fitting into to the UK was just a diary entry um that eventually uh sort of was um fixed up a little bit and I remembered before I, I performed it to any audience I was really really hesitant and I was like oh no this is so personal and then that ended up being the favorite like wherever I go everyone's like can you can you read the round peg um but yeah definitely was inspired by my dad actually a funny story um the first time my dad ever exhibited his photography uh we were standing inside this small gallery called the Kufa Gallery which is closed down now in Bayswater it was it was run by Iraqi exiled people and um he just his friends kind of encouraged him to to get his photography of of the displaced people in Iran from Iraq um on display and to, to hold this exhibition and it was this tiny gallery we never expected a lot of people to come it was just kind of his first ever exhibition and by the late afternoon the place was full of people and we were just like why is why is this so popular and we found out that was the day that they found Saddam Hussein in the hole and so this was on the news and it just happened to correlate with the day that my dad had this exhibition about um, Saddam Hussein's war crimes. Um, so, yeah. Wow. So the turnout was much bigger than expected and he had... Much bigger. And we just thought, what the hell? Who knows my dad? Like, <laughs> how did they find out about this? It wasn't even well advertised. It wasn't... There was no social media back then. Word got around. Yeah, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Because of the poster outside, it just said Iraq, Saddam Hussein, displaced people, whatever. And people were just like, yeah, this fits in with, with what's going on and just sort of started coming in. <laughs> great turnout well I think it's kind of it's understandable that those themes of displacement and belonging have kind of worked their way into your poetry and you've been writing poems I, I read online that you you had your first poems published at age 11 is that right yeah um it was as a result of winning a competition in school so um back then my English actually wasn't that great I wasn't completely fluent in English so I wrote this really weird poem about um the ocean and it had nothing to do with the, the kind of themes that I write about now but that definitely and my teacher um kind of uh, encouraged me to to enter into the competition and she was like look it, it is good I know you don't think it's good but it's good and and you can compete just like everybody else and there's no need to be self-conscious about your English it's really good and so she entered it and out of the whole school I think they picked five winners and I was one of them and I was the youngest and then they picked more children from um the borough and then it was all published into an anthology which I still have and yeah it was just like having that was I think that was the thing that really encouraged me to keep going and to be like yeah you know I, I could do poetry this is this is my thing now yeah. oh well thank goodness for that teacher that you had her yeah, to, to push you thanks yeah to definitely it's always <laughs> and- isn't it it is. There's all, it just takes one really good teacher to kind of encourage you to do that. And can you tell us a little bit about how, obviously, we've spoken a little bit about your life growing up and um, your experiences. And that has, as well as informing your poetry, that's really kind of pushed you in the direction that you've taken with your 
work outside of that. Can you tell us a little bit about that, what you what you do? Yeah, so I work for a really wonderful organisation called Sufra, based in uh, northwest London, and they are primarily a food bank. But in 2016, um, when Brent was accepting uh, Syrian refugees through the UN, through a UN scheme called, scheme called the VPRS, um, they opened up a sort of new arm to their organisation, which was a refugee, which is now called the Refugee Resettlement Program, and it was to welcome the Syrian refugees who are moving into the area and kind of help them to settle in. Um, it started off just by providing them with sort of activities every now and again, and um, you know, purchasing like small things that they needed, like school uniforms and whatnot. And when I started in 2018, it had expanded into something, you know, much, much bigger. Now we work with refugees, asylum seekers, people with no status. Um, We work with EU migrants who come from refugee backgrounds and we provide welfare advice, some limited immigration support, um, we run, you know, um, coffee mornings and Esau classes, and we held a massive um, Persian New Year celebration in our community garden for for Persian speaking families, and um, yeah, it's it's a it's a bittersweet job. <laughs> it's definitely very yeah. triggering at times, um, and mm. I have to be sort of very boundaried with the work that I do. But at the same time, it is very rewarding to to work with my community, regardless of mm. where they're from. They are my community, um, and to be able. It to sounds like a fantastic organisation. Yeah, is there yeah. any way that if um, if we were to say link to this in our show notes, is there ways that people can support that? Absolutely. That yeah. So at the moment, we have the Ramadan campaign, um, and we're running that until. Um, until the end of the bank holiday, which is when Eid will be. Um, so, yeah, mm. people can donate um, to the Ramadan campaign and it will be fundraising for the refugee programme and for our normal food bank, which has seen a 300% increase since the start of the pandemic. So we definitely need oh. as much. People yeah. need yeah. it. Yeah, well, if you're in, is it northwest London? That's right, yeah, in Bryn. Yeah, well, if, you're, if you're in anywhere near northwest London, then keep a lookout and it's Sufra. Is the organisation, and that will be in the show notes. Thank you so much, Zina. How do you fit in writing poetry around a busy day, which must be quite draining emotionally and energy levels? Uh, where, is it at the end of the day? Is it first thing in the morning? Um, it's kind of a thing that will pop into my head when I'm commuting, or even in the middle of like an appointment with a with a client or a guest, as we call them, that I'm seeing. That something will pop into my head, and I just get the notes app out and I just type in like a line, yeah. and like this is really horrible, <laughs> and then. Um, And then I go home and I flesh it out. Sometimes I remember one time, this has not happened in a really long time, but I remember one time it was around um, the anniversary of my grandmother's passing. And I was at work, I was sitting at my desk and I just suddenly felt really sad. And I couldn't, I I didn't remember that it was the anniversary of her passing, but I, I couldn't like get over this like feeling, this heaviness. And then I remembered. And then this like entire poem just started like, going off in my head and I remember having to literally um take my phone and go into into the ladies room and just type it out before I forgot the words and then I literally wrote the whole thing um in 20 minutes like in there um and and then went home and and fixed it up a bit more it is harder now to to find time to to write poetry if I'm honest because of the, Mm. the pandemic really I think you know made life a lot busier and a lot more complicated and you almost have to like poetry is a release is something it's it's akin to therapy where you have to find time to actually sit mm. down and, and do that to release all of those feelings and thoughts and I think like most people because we've become so much busier and our you know mental space is like so much more limited now because we're worrying all the time um it's become a lot harder to do but it's just about finding the time those moments even if you have to run to the toilet yeah, and just scribble to. down yeah. yeah and thank goodness for the notes app yeah, absolutely. <laughs> where would we be without shout it shout out to the notes <laughs> I was thinking back to like you know people always say oh, oh in the women's the women's toilet people are always in there for a really long time and it's like what are they doing in there we're writing we're poetry, writing poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
I think this is a great point to uh, kind of dive a bit deeper into the H word, which this podcast is all about, hope. And would you be able to, this is a hard question, but you're a poet, you're a wordsmith. How would you define hope? Um, I think hope is bittersweet. Um, I think it, it makes you do crazy things. Um, I wrote one time in a, in a, in an essay that hope is what our parents smuggled, you know, from country to country. Mm. And, um, it's, it was this, like, it's like the secret that you hold within you that, that pushes you and keeps you going. And it can be, it can be the thing that keeps you alive. Um, you know, for a lot of the unaccompanied minors that I work with that come from Calais, you know, it's, it's what keeps them holding on to the hot rails under the lorry when the, when the, crossing borders um it's what keeps them hiding in the belly of a truck you know to to get across into the uk or to it's what keeps them holding on in a in a dinghy through through the ocean um but at the same time i think um it can hope can can be the thing that makes you do crazy things as well that makes you do things that uh, you know you might later regret yeah, I think listening to a poet describe hope is just, I mean, all of my hairs are standing up on shivers. end. Yeah, it's just, oh. thank you for your eloquence and your brilliance. I, thank you. Yeah, I think I totally agree. It, I, I, I feel that like, I really resonate with what you're saying about it being bittersweet. I can totally, yeah, I totally feel yeah. that. And you're kind of, and in, you know, your experiences and your work, you're surrounded by a lot of pain at times and, that you're finding that strength in through hope and in your work. And yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for, for describing that. I mean, I, I first listened to your poems. Um, I haven't actually seen you perform live, which I'd love to do someday, but I listened to you. I can attest that she's excellent. (laughs) (laughs) I did watch the Amos Trust's um, recording of you and you hosted a poetry evening for them with some other incredible poets and spoken word artists. And you were, you read a few poems out there and I remember thinking, wow, she's just, you're, you're such a powerful speaker and it's, I think there's something that definitely, as we said in the introduction, that comes to life when you're listening to poetry read aloud. And the episode's name really struck me. It was the recording was called Poetry, Protest and Revolution. And I wanted to just ask you your your thoughts on that. How do you think poetry, we've spoken about how poetry is linked to hope and how is it linked to protest and how could it be revolutionary? How could it actually change things? Yeah, I think... Um... Any medium through which you're telling a story that doesn't sit well with, with you know, with people or makes people think or disrupts a space is revolution, is revolutionary, is, is a form of protest. Um, I grew up really heavily influenced by an Iraqi poet called Ahmed Matar, um, who is, who was, you know, tortured in prison in Iraq for poetry because he wrote political poetry that was literally his his job um he lives in london now and um he's you know he he doesn't he uh, i think you know he he doesn't mix with the iraqi community at all because of how traumatized he is by his experiences in iraq but um his poetry were all of his poetry i've i've got loads of books of his poetry they're all just poetry where um he's basically poking fun at authority and um, kind of criticizing um, in really foul language sometimes um, authority and um, questioning everything, questioning the political system in a, in a country where you, you could disappear for, for just pronouncing the name of the leader wrong or for drawing, you know, Mm -hmm. my, my uncle, was kicked out of school for for drawing a picture um, next to the the portrait of Saddam Hussein in his school book. Um, you know, wow. I think poetry is ultimately a tool to tell your truth and to and to disrupt spaces. And um, I remember a poem that I wrote about um, the savior complex and my discomfort with volunteerism in refugee camps because I worked in a refugee camp in Greece um, and, and saw a lot of really toxic behavior um, from, from, from volunteers from the West, unfortunately. Um, and I read that poem to an audience of middle-class white people and, you know, um, 
everybody was super uncomfortable and I felt a great sense of fulfillment out of that. I didn't get the sort of praise that I usually get at the end of a poetry night, but I felt like it landed where it needed to land. Um, and that's probably- Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully they thought about that and they felt that and it changed their behavior or, or forced them to reflect on behavior because it is so yeah, important. Exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah, for me, I think it's, it's not just about... Um, you know, poetry is not just about talking about love and loss and heartbreak and, you know, the usual romantic poetry. It's all great, but I think it's definitely a tool for protest and it's definitely a tool for disrupting um, narratives. I think that idea of questioning authority as well and is, is so key to poetry. And you shared a couple of your poems with us, which we'll, we'll link to in the show notes as well. And uh, there was a poem on you, you, you write about colonialism and sort of the idea of yeah, rewriting history, basically. And Grenfell as well. You, you wrote a poem about Grenfell and you're really engaging with, with current events, what historical events and current events and kind of speaking truth to power, really. Yeah. So it's, it's such a powerful medium. Definitely. And I think if you go out there and you give a speech and, you know, you're sort of like just uh, just shouting down authority or like, you know, just angry saying, you know, not, not that there's anything wrong with being angry and poetry can be angry and anger is a great tool for, for protest. But um, I think if you're just out there just like saying this is wrong and this should happen and I'm not happy with this, it's not as well received as, you know, once you put that sort of flowery language around it and you kind of deliver mm. it sort of in a way that, that is palatable for people but still catches them. Um, I think there was a quote that I read a really long time ago that I really love. I can't remember who it's by, sadly, but um, it said that a poem should um, take you by the hand, uh, give you a seat and then punch you in the stomach. Um, oh, I and love I think that. that's exactly what poetry can do. Absolutely. Well, I think we're almost at the end of our time with you, Zena, but I feel like we could just keep asking you questions and you'd keep saying beautiful answers. Um, but we uh, we always finish our conversations with people with this section called Hope in a Hurry. And it's asking you for your prescription for hope. So if you're looking for a bit of hope and you don't know where to find it, apart from reading a poem, maybe. But um, we've the first one is a hopeful read. So this would be a book or a magazine, a newspaper, or a blog. Yeah, um- um, so for me, one of the books I always go back to is um, Gibran, Khalid Gibran's The Prophet, uh, which is almost like a manual for life. And it, like each section tells you, you know, um, it kind of gives you the perfect advice for, for different things in life. And yeah, when I'm feeling sort of hopeless or finding something difficult to deal with, I can just go into that and, and just flick through to the section that I love. But he also has a poem which directly talks about hopes and desires and says um in the depths in the depths of your hopes and desires lies your silent knowledge of the beyond and like seeds dreaming beneath the snow your heart dreams of spring and i think i love that the idea of you know hope is just like this seed you know waiting in the winter under the soil um ready for ready for spring i really love that Oh, that's beautiful. Um, it reminds me of a Philip Larkin poem that's about spring and about a lamb being born and there's snow everywhere, but underneath there's like spring is waiting to come up and they do, and the lamb does no, have no idea that it's coming. Oh, that's uh, gorgeous. Yeah. There's that saying, isn't there, you can you can cut down all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring mm, from coming. Exactly. And that's, that's the ultimate idea of hope, isn't it? That you can take away everything, but people will keep going because of hope. Like that's where resilience is born. It's from that place of hope. Mm. The human spirit. Mm, And how about a hopeful listen then? Is there a podcast or a radio show that you'd recommend to people? Yeah, so there are actually two podcasts. I can't really choose between. um, I really love podcasts. So um, do we. One of them is... (laughs) one of them is uh, Modern Love by the New York Times and um, I really love it because it just has these like bite-sized stories of like love conquering all and you know um, really uplifts me the other one is uh, Where Should We Begin by Esther Perel who is a fantastic um, New York based uh, psychologist therapist um, and the podcast is just uh, every episode is a, it takes on a couple and talks through the issues that they're having in their relationships. And it's just not just romantic couples. There's also um, parents and children and there's friends. And 
by the end of it, you kind of feel them moving into a place of hope. You feel them sort of moving into a more positive, you know, era in their relationship. And it, it it's very uplifting and very um, informative, I think. Mm, I love that podcast because it really feels like you're a fly on the wall and you're getting all the juicy yeah. ghosts from someone's relationship. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, you feel like, oh, my God, is that me? Am I that yeah. person in the relationship? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. So all of the recommendations will be in the show notes and this is your prescription. We're going to combine the prescription with Rakaya's recommendations as well at the end for the full prescription. Um, before we hear your final poem, Zena, would you just tell us how people can kind of keep keep up to date with you and what you're doing um, and how best to follow your work? Um so the best way to follow my work would be through Instagram. Unfortunately, I don't post too much on there, but whenever there is something happening, I do put it on the stories. Um, so yeah, Instagram, my uh, handle is xena.kaz um, and people are welcome to follow me on there. Perfect. Brilliant. Thank you. And I think you're going to read your second poem for us now, which is called My Lebanese Neighbour. Is that right? That's right. My Lebanese Neighbour. My Lebanese neighbor told me the story of how he was born in a civil war. His mother was going into labor and the nearest hospital was a 20 minute drive. The sky was raining bombs and his mother could no longer contain him. His father placed a white sheet of surrender over the car and carried her in, kissed her forehead and said, either we make it back as three or we go all together. And they drove through the night with that combination of hope and fear hanging over their heads, white flag over their roof, to say, we are civilians. With the sound of every bomb falling around them, the earth shook. His mother cried. His father prayed. He struggled inside her. She held him in as far as she could. And when her body prepared itself for birth against her will, they stopped the car. And my Lebanese neighbor was born on the side of the road, six meters away from the overcrowded hospital. He was born into his mother's bloodstained dress and his father's kefiyah. The first sound in his ear was shelling as a backdrop to the adhan and his father's shaking voice. We sit outside our council block and compare wounds, like children on the playground compare scraped knees. I hold out my old home to him faded and far and he shows me his childhood a bruised flower crushed mid-bloom his strong hand quivers from the weight of its fragile petals and the scent of it is so familiar for a moment i mistake his wound for mine and i wonder if he knows some of us are, have our destinies written on visas not yet issued before we are born some of us come into this world refugees That was Zina Kazimi reading My Lebanese Neighbour. Now we're delighted to be joined by our second guest in our poetry special. Rakea Fatuga is an award-winning poet and writer from London of Ghanaian and Nigerian heritage. She describes her work as depicting women of the global majority through an ethereal lens. In her work, you'll hear broad concepts captured by tiny sensorial details that conjure up vivid moods of nostalgia, anger, joy, sorrow and celebration. As a poet, Rakea is well decorated and also incredibly busy. She has been commissioned by the BBC, Bloomberg Philanthropies, English Touring Theatre, and she's also a resident artist at the Roundhouse in London. She produces, curates and facilitates events. And the four aspects that underpin all of her work are overlapping identities, faith, culture and self-affirmation. Rakea is going to start today with a reading of one of her poems called The World Is Yours. She's having a car boot sail on black clouds, the kind that plume heavy and follow. So even when the sun is high, it's too dark to see tomorrow. This humbling she's selling for a dollar and a dream so kids born in affliction can choose a new theme. Some say they saw her in Nabisale, wrapped in kafia at the foot of her house, throwing punches at a cloud in uniform, armed with rubber, metal and gas. Limbs and stones are all she has, but does not see herself as a victim. She is a witness, 
of men grinding the land like spices split apart, a scattered people scattering people or kettling them to a crumb of their home, cattle herding to a corner with no space to roam, she says no, a windstorm in her fists. She cries, I was born a daughter of Palestine. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Some say her spirit is chained in China, a muting shadow cast over Xinjiang. She fasts in Ramadan, but is force-fed a new identity, hushed into submission. And when her stomach swells, she is made to abort and sterilized. When her voice is taken, there's a scream in her eyes. I have rights on this earth and the choice to give birth is mine. It's mine, it's mine. Some say they saw her in the Amazon of Ecuador, flame red across her cheeks, with her tribe of Waorani women blazing through their lush canvas of green and brown, anything but weak. While dark clouds slick as oil try mining into ancient soil to kill the landscape, matar la cultura, she will not give up land that is viva y pura. While their greed breaks through the acres, she won't stand benign, she fights, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And was that her behind a fortress of papers in London, trying to decode decades of documents and prove her grandparents' right to live in the country they grew up in and raise their kids? Brought from Caribbean islands in a whirlwind with the windrush and heady dreams to give everything to the foggy city, but hostile environments for immigrants mean they're not home in the only place they've ever truly known. Britishness given and taken away on whim, smog clouds in the system, but she's fighting to win. No more using than shipping away, not this time. I know this place. I know what's mine. That's her. Always making a deal with the sky on these dark clouds that plume heavy and follow pushing her out or closing her in at the doors. But whose world is this? The world is yours. Wow, thank you so much, Rekaya, for sharing your poem, The World is Yours. And we'll link to that in our show notes so that everyone can have a read of it afterwards. And thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the We Do Hope podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today? Uh, I'm in northwest London today. I'm at home. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm not too far away. I'm in south London. Okay. Tilly's up in Sheffield, so we're a bit spread out. But oh, it's lovely to be speaking to you. And we always start our podcast with the, the same question. So we'd like to ask you this today, which is what is something small or something big that has made you hopeful this week? Um, well, I was part of a, a poetry um course we've been uh writing poems at the Barbican for oh I saw this on your Instagram yeah (laughs) so I was I was part of the the Young Poets scheme this uh year Uh, and we had our showcase yesterday and one of the poets Maeve Sarah she um she read her poems and then at the end um of the whole event she gave out marigold seeds she had a really beautiful poem about marigolds um, and then she gave everyone seeds at the end of the event. Oh, that's so, beautiful. Yeah, it was just lovely to think that her poetry is going to be spread in, in the physical planting of seeds all around, yeah. all around London. Yeah. Oh, so that's beautiful. It was really lovely. Oh, well, let's get into it. And um, we'll go back to the beginning. And, and just tell us a little bit about how you first became aware of poetry, what that word meant, and how you started writing poetry. Mm, well, I've always been writing something. I've always been interested in different creative arts. I used to be part of like theatre, youth theatre groups, and um, I used to write songs and things like that. Um I think I probably kind of entered like a poetry scene um, after uni and my friend sent me like a competition that she saw on Twitter and she was like, yeah, you should like write something and send it in. Um, So I think, yeah, other people kind of encouraged me into poetry, even in school, like 
just teachers having like little competitions to to get us to share our work um and yeah I always enjoyed writing um and I found that poetry is such uh it can be like quite a social way of writing compared to like writing fiction uh because you can sort of write something quite quickly and then share it that day and have a conversation with someone about it um immediately kind of so uh yeah I really love that kind of aspect of poetry I was reading a couple of the poems on your on your website and I noticed that there was a sort of um I suppose a recurrence of 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 your taste of of food of of flavor and drinks and and like kind of like mouth mouth related things and I wondered whether you could talk a bit about that and whether there was an overlap there with the sort of um overlapping identities that you that you mentioned uh in your sort of introduction um what can you talk a little bit about that yeah I think I just love to eat so that's from women after my own heart <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that food holds so much, um, when it comes to culture and storytelling, um, and legacy. Um, mm. so I, my grandparents came to, to the UK, uh, in the sixties and my parents were born here. Um, and then I was born here as well. And I've got sort of two countries that, um, my heritage lines go to, so that's Ghana and Nigeria, um, so there's just like a mix of cultures, just living in London as well. You're always going to mm. um, come across so many cultures, so many foods. Um, so, yeah, I think that food is one way that I try to connect back to um, Ghana and Nigeria, I think. Um, and yeah, it's just. I just love to talk about it, I think. I think it, it can definitely hold memory. Like, taste can hold a lot of memory. Mm. Um, yeah. Like, there's a, yeah, there's another poem that I want to share um, later, and it just reminds me of school. Yes. <laughs> Particular mm. drinks and flavours. Yeah, will just remind you of a specific time. So Those recipes that you grew up with and the, what you yeah. get fed in, in the school canteen, they really stick with you, don't they? <laughs> they yeah, take you back. I, it was specifically the, the poem, um, the coconut poem, because yeah. you talk about having this coconut, but it's like so overpriced on Oxford Street. And then, you know, but actually eating a coconut on a beach in Africa, you know, it's a completely different experience, but it's the same kind of taste. Yeah, uh, yeah it was. It, that's that's a great poem, and you can find that on Rikai's website. And Rikai, you've mentioned about that conversational aspect and the fact that when you're writing poetry, you get that immediate response. Well, really quick response from people, and I guess that instant instant kind of reaction is something that you obviously really love about it can you tell us a little bit about your performing because you've performed in some incredible places I mean the Royal Albert Hall what was that like and what's it like sharing those experiences with people um yeah I think it's great I think I love like with the coconut poem as well so that that was looking at a very specific experience of me being in Ghana, being from Ghana and Nigeria and London and living in London and, and what that means for me. And um, yeah, I remember like one time someone came up to me um, and was like, yeah, I just really connected to this because um, I can't speak Yiddish and, you know, I feel like I've lost that part of my heritage. And it's like, wow, like just a totally different context, but you can still connect to it. So I love that seeing how people interpret the work in different ways and how it can take on a new meaning for them um and yeah Royal Albert Hall was fun I wasn't in the big <laughs> I wasn't in the big on the big stage but I have performed there once in my oh, primary yeah. school choir <laughs> <laughs> we were, yeah, amazing it's it like you're in good company Adele, Rikaya, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <The> Beatles <laughs> but yeah we were in a smaller room that was that was a fun event though it was like a mixed event there was all sorts going on that was like a drag show nice. that was everything yeah oh, that must have been incredible do you um I I've I've been to a few poetry events over the years and I always find the the concept of the clicking and if people don't know what that is can you just explain what that means 
Yeah, clicking is just a way to show your appreciation for a line or some kind of sentiment in the poem. And it's something that doesn't interrupt um, too strongly or too abruptly. Um, mm. You can kind of click and still carry on with the flow of the uh, poem without getting distracted. Um, someone said that, um, yeah, I can't remember who the quote is by, but that a spell is kind of cast when a poem finishes and we clap to break the spell. But yeah, clapping can be quite... Um, kind of interrupts the... It, yeah, the it interrupts the moment. Um, mm. But yeah, clicking doesn't do that. I guess it's clicking adds to the rhythm of it. It's becoming yes. part of the poem. Um, so yeah, it's just, I, love, I love it. One of my friends is a teacher actually, and she's been teaching her kids to do that instead of clapping. And so she has like all these six-year-olds that just sit there and do this in appreciation of like a good nice. book or such it's, respectful audience goes of the future. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I know someone who does that just when people are speaking generally. Oh, oh yeah. I think I think also like drag culture uses that as a okay. as a sort of as a sort of symbol of appreciation as well. Mm. So and I love it. And I, I think I've I'm guilty of it. I've definitely clicked at people in just in the cafe. <laughs> oh, <God>. yes. <laughs> um, I love it. I actually can't click so I can't even join in with Well you'll be <laughs> you're, you're on the stage. Yeah you can, you're work. doing the performing. <laughs> Moving on to, um, as you know, this podcast is all about hope. And so we talk a lot about hope. We've been thinking a lot about hope and what it means. How would you put hope into words? What does it kind of look like to you to be hopeful? I think there's something about consistency and just carrying on, even when things don't look like they're going in the best direction. Mm. Uh, but just continuing so there's uh, a quote um in islam it's something that i think it's something that the prophet muhammad said which is that if someone tells you that the world is ending and you're planting a seed then just plant your seed and carry on so it's like even if there's no hope left um still carry on keep going and um, do something that could be of benefit to something else to someone in the future mm, that's lovely it links back to your marigold seeds from your friends yeah. <laughs> like the gift that keeps on giving you're planting the seeds for somebody else to enjoy yeah. yeah and in terms of like poetry and hope do you think that poetry can make the world more hopeful do you feel hopeful when you're writing a poem um yeah I think I do feel hopeful writing poems, sharing poems. And I think um, that feeling of connection with people is a hopeful thing. So when you realize, oh, I'm not alone in feeling like this or thinking like this, um, then that can be quite hopeful just to have something in common with someone. It's a shared experience, isn't it? It's something that you can all kind of enjoy together and mm. respond to in different ways and take something different from it, but experience it together. It's a beautiful yeah, thing. Definitely. So we like to ask all of our guests for um, some hopeful recommendations, which we call Hope in a Hurry. And it's kind of a prescription for hope. And today we were hoping you could share with us a hopeful watch. So a film, a TV documentary. Yeah. Um, so a hopeful watch that I would share is um, Oprah's Book Club with Viola Davis. Yes. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, I just watched that recently. And yeah, definitely filled me with hope hearing Viola's stories and everything oh. she's been through and accomplished. Yeah, she's an, she's an amazing actor and just... Oh, I've I've I watched that as well and was so inspired. It was yeah. brilliant. <laughs> um, and then secondly, what is a hopeful anthem? So a song or music or album? Um, I have a song. It's a bit of a cheesy one. <laughs> <laughs> we love cheese here. Yeah, okay, great. It's one that takes me back to my childhood as well. So it's One Step at a Time by Jordan Sparks. 
<laughs> really cute, happy, hopeful um, anthem, I would say. Oh my goodness, I've not thought about Jordan Sparks in years. <laughs> Thank you for bringing her back into my life. Everything that you always dreamed of, close enough for you to people keep up with your work and I read online that you were doing a developing a monodrama for the roundhouse what's what what is that and when is that coming and when can people see it oh um I did I did develop a monodrama I need to update some of the things that are online (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so that was called unbraided it was like a coming of age tale about growing up in London and learning to cane row hair um so I worked on that I might be releasing like a digital version of that at some point soon um yeah but right now I'm actually working on fiction so I'm trying to move in that direction that's amazing and you can follow people can follow you on Instagram what can you tell us your handle yes so I'm at Rakea Essie so you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter and all the things and I've got Mm -hmm. a a newsletter that I send out every two weeks you can hear about what I'm up to and what I'm doing brilliant I am signing up for that thank you (laughs) so you're gonna read us a second poem to close us out um but before we say before we hear that we just want to say thank you so much for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today Thank you both for having me. Thank you. So here's Rakea Fatuga with her poem, Why I Asked My Kid Self to Hang Out After School. Just want to buy her a mango Rubicon with all the original fructose. Raise a carton and straw and drink to the spirit of girls before they were taught to shrink, to pour themselves in the moulds of what other minds think is right for them to the days before losing savour and zest in the dregs of a cup, sacrificing, trying to top up someone else's half empty. I want us to drink to the spirit of girls so full, so precious past, so fleeting fast, so sprightly offbeat own wave in the sherbet mist of childhood brave. A toast, a sweet dua for girls with a taste for life, who pause only to breathe, and they're taking their futures in. I am just craving a mango Rubicon now. Yes. Fizzy or still? Still for me. Still like the little carton. I'm going to go to the corner shop and get one after this. <laughs> um, what a lovely way to spend the afternoon listening to I know. Poetry. I know what a joy and yeah I absolutely adored both Zena and Rakea's poetry it was so special to hear them reading them aloud um to us directly as well that was just yeah a, an amazing experience and yeah gorgeous poems what did you yeah, think I completely agree and we're so lucky that we were able to talk to them both at this point in their careers and um I was just kind of reflecting on how that they're poems are so personal to them and their histories and heritages and um situations but they are sort of like artifacts that will go on through time and as a kind of capturing of this moment and uh you know maybe historians in the future will be reading them and finding them online and going wow who who are these women and maybe they'll listen to this podcast maybe we'll we'll be a historical artifact eh? (laughs) um so yeah I think hopefully people go away listening today thinking about poetry and hope and feeling like that's a this is sort of a a, another place where we can find hope Mm, it's a really powerful tool as well isn't it I think it's really reignited my love of poetry and I want to go away and read a bit more and watch some of their YouTube videos and I also really loved something that Zena said which was I think she was quoting somebody else and she said that poetry sits you down it kind of makes you all cozy and relaxed and then it gives you a punch in the stomach Mm. and I thought that was so true and some of the things that they say in both of their poems actually in their their works they are uncomfortable to listen to and you know exposing unconscious bias and you know privilege and really holding a mirror up to society and I thought it was there was a lot to think about there and really thought provoking 
I hope people will look them up because we've got all of their details in the show notes and you can go away and watch uh, watch their poems, read their poems and tell us what you think. We can, you can tell us at we do hope underscore podcast or find all of the information for this episode and previous episodes at we do hope.org. Yes, and do remember to review and rate and subscribe because it really helps people find us and do share it with a mate if you think there's someone that would enjoy this. And we'll see you next time. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Amos Trust, a small creative human rights organisation based in the UK. Amos aims to challenge injustice, restore rights and create hope, working with grassroots partners in three main areas, street justice, Palestine justice and climate justice. They work in creative, responsive and collaborative ways to bring about local solutions to global issues. For more details, please visit amostrust.org.